Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Mein Freundin, ich heiße El Mai und mit mir mein sehr schönes Freund Jakob des Niederlander. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Edinburgh. I am Al Murray and this is my good friend James Holland, historian James Holland. Is this your first fringe, James? Well, do you know what, Al? It isn't. I, I first came to Fringe 30 years ago in 1989 when my brother was putting on two plays when he was at Cambridge. Uh, and I was kind of third statue at the back in both performances. He bullied you into coming to... Yeah, but it was good fun. It was great. Yeah. I, felt, I felt a bit older now, though. Has it changed? A little bit. In the 30 years? A little bit. A little bit. I think I've been... I haven't been back every year since then, but almost. Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah, yeah. Well, not really. Not when you've got a liver like the one I've got. Right, now... (laughs) Now, for those of you who've stumbled in wondering what you're in for, this is... We have ways of making you talk. Normally, we're a podcast about the Second World War, but today we've gone all multimedia with pictures and real people and costumes like it's 1997. So... James, as we all know, is a proper historian. You probably saw him on the telly during the D-Day commemorations. We did, didn't we? Yes? I certainly did. (laughs) Now, I'm more a passionate fan of the period. He's the trawlerman out on the high seas. I like a good bag of fish and chips. Anyway, here's the plan. Um, Over the next uh, 45 minutes or so, we're going to play a sort of version of World War II Top Trumps. with all the moral complications that implies. (laughs) 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 Then for the last half hour, we're going to try and answer as many questions as we can. Um, uh, We've had some sent in via the Twitter scope and from you here this afternoon. We'd love to know um, uh, what you want to know. And believe me, James knows an awful lot about the Second World War. So we're in Edinburgh, of course, um, and we mentioned uh, on the podcast that we were coming here and we got a very interesting response from Andy Donaldson who I believe is here today. Andy, are you here? Fantastic. Well, thank excellent. you, Andy. Thanks. This is an excellent question, and, and we were entirely delighted with us um, uh, with this one. Um, tickets bought for Wednesday. I mean, how about that? Paying punter. Um, I'm expecting a wee field trip to Princess Street Gardens. Of course, um, I'm from uh, England, and a wee field trip is something probably quite different. <laughs> <laughs> it's when you caught short and pull off the M1 and find a gatepost. Anyway, so a wee field trip to Princess Street Gardens to see... Wojciech. Now, what is Wojciech? Well, Wojciech is the uh, is a bear that accompanied um, two Polish corps throughout the Italian campaign, and actually before that, I mean, they picked him up in um, in Iraq, actually. Um, in Iraq, yeah, in Iraq. And, um, Poles in Iraq, James. Yes. Well, see, so what happened was was what a lot of people forget is that in 1939, when the Germans invaded Poland, um, a couple of weeks later, the Red Army also invaded Poland from the east. 
and lots of Poles were uh, wrapped up by the uh, by the Red Army, captured, put in prison, sent you know put on trains, sent back to uh, the Arctic Circle where they spent the next year and a bit in um, in a gulag. There were thousands of them. And then when the Germans invaded Soviet Union in June 1941, then they were very reluctantly released by the by the Russians. Uh, uh, this is this is um, uh, men rather than officers because the officers uh, uh, famously the officer class in Poland was was, was the yeah. Katyn massacre. Exactly. You have the the, the, the Russians come in and quite consciously dismantle the Polish state completely. Yep. They 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 uh, they basically do what they've done in in Ukraine, where yes. they 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 completely pull apart the apparatus of the state. They they remove who they see as the bourgeois. Yep. They completely dismantle the place. So Poland becomes this sort of uh, uh, work in progress Soviet province um, uh, after the invasion in '39. Exactly. Uh, and so what then happens is they are told to muster in Kazakhstan, which is about 2,000 miles southwards from the Arctic Circle. And they have to make their way any which way they can. Along the route, you know, a lot of them are going by trains and things. And, and lots of Soviets are trying to sort of encourage them to go and join cooperative farms and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, when they do finally get to Kazakhstan, there's a typhoid, uh, typhus epidemic and a malaria epidemic, and lots of them then subsequently die. Um, um, but the British are financing them and, and equipping them to then take up arms beside them in the fight against Nazi Germany. And most of them are pretty up for it, frankly. Yes. So what they then do is they then get to, uh, go, they go through Iran, Persia, um, into Iraq, um, and up to Kirkuk, which is where they are, they are sort of fattened up a little bit where they pick up Votek yeah. it's, it's on the risk board Kirkuk isn't it? Yeah it is and obviously yeah. you know hit the news in the Iraq war a little bit yep. um, and subsequently with um, ISIS and all the rest of it so yep. you know it's a bit of a war zone it has to be said but um, th that's where the Poles are kind of sort of fattened up and they start their training and then they go on to, uh, to Palestine where they finish their training and Votek goes with them and he's become this kind of mascot um, and they then get transferred to Italy in uh, March 1944 and almost immediately are put straight into line on Monte Cassino, which is one of the most kind of fought over bits of, of, of real estate in the entire Italian campaign, entire Second World War, frankly. Yeah. Um, and they're involved in the actual capture of the Monte Cassino. I mean, they, they capture it in May 1944. And, and Voce is involved in carrying ammunition for them up to the front line. So they kind of put a strap on his back and he takes boxes of ammo because he's a very, very strong bear. And, um, <laughs> and he stays with them the entire time. And they're fighting all the way through Italy. And at the very end of the war, when you know, a lot of these, these Poles don't have a Poland to go back to, because most of them came from eastern Poland, which has now been absorbed by, obviously, by behind the Iron Curtain. Yep. A lot of them come to Britain. Wojciech comes with them and ends up in Edinburgh Zoo. And that's where he spends the rest of his days. How amazing. What it is an amazing story. Thank you, Andy, for, for, for um, bringing that up. Because yep. I, it's I, an amazing story. I did not know about that, and it's quite extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, and you wonder what that bear must have been thinking, eh? <laughs> Um, you know, Paddington, yeah. he's reading the Paddington books thinking, oh, easy life. Yeah. <laughs> but at least he gets bully beef, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Marmalade. <laughs> right. Now um, we want to talk about great last stands. Um, Not the greatest last stands, but no. just great last stands. So right. there's others. Yeah. So Arnhem. Well, um, yeah, you talk about that one, Al. Yeah. The admin box or Birhim in Libya. Now, which are we most familiar with in this room? Uh, Arnhem? Arnhem. I think we all know about Arnhem, and it's... Um, Arnhem, I think... 
Arnhem occupies. Uh, I mean, I'm fascinated by the, uh, the 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 position Arnhem occupies in people's imaginations as well, because it's essentially the last defeat that the British have in the in the in, in the Western Theatre in the Second World War. Basically, it's their la- it's the last proper defeat. It's the last thing things go completely wrong. Yeah. Last time things go completely wrong, and it's. I still the, think it was worth a punt. Yeah, but so do I. But but but. But it's also the thing everyone knows about. So it's this peculiar, um, it casts this looming shadow over the rest of the campaign from September to May the next year when, when um, uh, the British army and the Canadian army get better and better at fighting the Germans and then Germany reaches this tipping point and collapses and, and we get to the Baltic. Um, and yet people want to talk about Arnhem and, it, and it's... Be- and they're also, I mean, they're also obsessed with the Driver 30 Corps and actually in, yeah. in um, next month, I think we're going over there, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, we we're are, gonna, yeah. They've got something like, they've amassed 500 um, British vehicles to reenact the 30 Corps march and, yeah. and it's all got to be done properly and you've got to wear the right kit and you've got to have the yeah. right vehicle and anything, don't worry, we don't have to do that. No, we don't have to we do, we that, do that. We don't have to do that. But yeah, we're going to go over and talk to them but I mean, it'll... It, it is amazing how the hold it has on... on yeah, it's got an incredible grip on people's imagination. And, and I think because... I mean, I think, personally, it's because it occupies this fantastic what-if yep. um, moment. What if um, uh, First Airborne had, let's say, got a brigade to the bridge, held on in time for 30 Corps to turn up? Um, obviously, that would have meant that US 82nd Airborne should have taken Nijmegen Bridge on the first day didn't for some reason it's all a bit of a mystery and certainly General Gavin as soon as the campaign was over made a great song and dance about how he'd been told not to um, and all that sort of stuff even though his men yeah. did and the boats get, were there after all the yeah, night before yeah, and he just yeah. didn't know about it yeah and the men did get to the bridge on the day and then were yep. ordered back which is all quite murky and quite strange and there's yeah. a very good book by a Dutch historian called uh uh, uh, DG Pullison, I think, um, who you'll find on Twitter, yep. who's written a really good book, um, which is a sort of jacuzzi about the about the Market Garden campaign, where he goes, "It's all Gavin's fault. Everything you've ever read about First Airborne, the poor sods, they were stitched up because if Gavin had taken Nijmegen Bridge, they'd have been they they wouldn't have to have performed this heroic last stand because they'd have been relieved." And, um, and it's, this, it's a fantastically angry book um, <laughs> that I really recommend. Well worth the read, and he, he's really got a point to make. Well, those, those, sort of, those polemics, those big angry polemics, sometimes they are really good, aren't they? Because yeah. they just make you think in a different yeah. way about something that right. you're now, used to. The admin box. Are we all familiar with the admin box? Yeah. No. Right, so... Okay, well, very, very briefly. Amin, Amin Box is really the first time that the British defeat the Japanese um, in, in the Far East. Uh, and what they realise is that... Japanese are like locusts, so they come in and they feed off. One of the reasons why they're able to kind of move so quickly through the jungle is because they're feeding off what they capture. So if you deny them ammunition, deny them arms, deny them food, then they're going to struggle. Um, and that they're not the supermen that everyone kind of thinks they are. And the Amin box is this administrative box for 7th Indian Division. So this is where all the stores are kept and where the kind of sort of, you know, you know the cooks and the, and the truck drivers and all the rest of it. Plus some, 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 some Gurkhas and other people, you know. So backstage. And the, the West Yorkshiremen, I've got to say. And, uh, but they're surrounded. They get completely surrounded and they're cut off. But because we've earlier brought Spitfires over very sensibly, we've then secured airspace. We've managed to secure airspace, um, air superiority over that northwest, now Rohin State, what was the Arakan. This is where all the Rohingyas are at the moment, everyone's talking about. Uh, and so what they're able to do is do these arms drops. So they drop all this stuff into the beleaguered um, guys defending the admin box and they're told whatever happens don't budge an inch don't give 
an inch. And basically, they don't. They hold off. And, and these thousands of Japanese keep attacking them every single night. And every single night, they just keep getting slaughtered. And, and the, the efficacy of these attacks by the Japanese just gets worse and worse and worse because, of course, they're getting hungrier and hungrier, running out of ammo and all the rest of it, and doing more charges with swords and less with, with um, machine guns. Uh, and they win the day. And it's a, it's a terrible defeat for the Japanese and completely throws them off because just around the corner is going to be the campaign against Imphal. Um, and, and the whole point was this was supposed to draw troops away from Imphal to defend Arakan so that giving them a free passage or a much easier passage into Imphal and that doesn't happen. But the, the, the Japanese would, would, would literally attack from the same place at the same time every mm -hmm. night, regular as clockwork yeah. and the, the, they, the, the British troops or the, or the Imperial troops would hear the Japanese shouting, we're coming to get you now Tommy, we're on our way and so they shell and mortar them before they even left their, their rendezvous point. So the Japanese really did displaying complete inflexibility. Totally. Having been yeah. characterized as being super flexible, super, super adapted to the jungle, really good at fighting. And in fact, when, when, they, were, when they were brought to a halt, yep. they, they weren't very good at it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then Bir Hakim, I like this one. Um, yeah, Bir Hakim's a good story. So do we know about Bir Hakim? No. No, well, it's no. It's French, no it? we've it's never heard of it. <laughs> Where's Bir Hakim? No. <laughs> so, James. Well, Bir Hakim is at the very end of the Ghazala line, which is this absolutely pointless defensive line that the British did because they could have just defended Tobruk, uh, which would be much more sensible, which has supply lines coming in and out of the port, um, has sort of lines of Torres Vedras equivalent already built in around it, lots of minefields, all the rest of it, ammo, dumps and supplies, but they don't. Instead of, of probably defending Tobruk, they extend 50 miles further to the west and create a long line into the desert. Uh, and what Rommel does is he attacks at the very end of May 1942 and does what he's always done before, which is just outflank the whole thing. It goes round it. Yeah, except that at the very end of the line are the three French under Pierre Koenig, uh, about 12 miles further south from the last bit of the British positions, which in itself is diplomat diplomatically not very smart, I would argue. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so the French are completely cut off, completely surrounded, and they hold out for absolutely ages. And of course, you know, the Italians and the, and the, and the Germans can't just ignore them. They've got to deal with them. And they keep being repulsed, keep being repulsed, and eventually they do this overnight breakout. And it's absolutely fantastic. And um, um, because uh, um, they're French, Pierre Koenig has a lover who he has with him at Bir Hakim called yes. Susan Travers who happens to be English and she writes this absolutely fantastic memoir of you know her lovely nights with Pierre and the general you know her general uh, <laughs> and escaping from from the uh, Bir Hakim box and uh, you, well, you wouldn't want to go there now but you one could get there and, and it's a sort of mound of sort of decaying Bogest fort. I mean, that's basically what it, what it looks like, what it looks like now. But it is the most amazing story. It really, really is. And, and the French really, they put a lot of fire in their belly on the back of this. Yeah. Yeah. And then fight well, at Alamein and so on. Well, you know, sometimes defeat is the thing you need, isn't it? To, mm. you know, make you pull your socks up. Yeah. Well, it certainly <laughs> makes them pull their socks up. That's right. Sure. Now, uh, Oh, most decisive moment of the Second World War. Crikey. Um, now, I'm a bit surprised because we, 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 the, the production team came up with these rather than us. I'm a bit surprised Stalingrad isn't on there, but, you know, whatever. And um, <laughs> producer works in football. Um, the, the, <laughs> the, um, so we have the Battle of Britain. Um, now, it's interesting. We've got the dates there until the 31st of October because I think most people probably think it ends in September, don't they? 
Yeah, but it does go on. I mean, it's a it's an arbitrary date. The only reason we have those dates is because they were chosen by uh, Air Chief Marshal um, uh, Air Chief Marshal Downing when he was doing his dispatch. And he doesn't say at the top of his dispatch actually. As far as I'm concerned, the Battle of Britain started the moment the war began, um, uh, and it was over the moment that the uh, the you know the invasion went away, which was not till the spring of 1941. But but I've got to give a date, so I'm going to give this. Yeah. Um, so it is a bit arbitrary. But but it, it it's it's really important out because it's 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 a defeat for Germany. They don't get close to invading Britain. Britain has not come to the peace table, uh, and that is just totally against the plan. So all the things it was trying to achieve, yep. it fails in. Totally. Um, and in a way, what happens is the Germans walk into, into a, a British trap. Yes. The, the, the defence of the British Isles f f from the sky has been designed to be dealt with the way that, that, that Fighter Command deal with it in 1940. Yeah. And that... And the, However, the story we have told ourselves since is, of course, we're pluckily... The last line of defence, honestly. Last it was the first line of defence, incidentally. Yeah, it was actually... It was very much the first line of defence. You know, behind yeah. that, you've got the Royal Navy, you've got, you know, two and a half million men in uniform, you know, the you know, Home Guard aren't all Captain Mannerings and Private Pike. I mean, you know, some of them are actually quite useful. Uh, and a lot of weapons. You've got 18 Bomber Command squadrons ready with um, chemical weapons to drop on the invasion fleet. The whole invasion plan is... a total shower anyway yeah. um, it would just never in a million years work but it is a massive defeat for the Germans and it is a defeat for Luftwaffe and suddenly it's like oh so what do we do now because they just haven't thought beyond Britain surrendering or, or, yeah. or suing for but, peace but they also hadn't in, in, in honesty hadn't, they hadn't, the Germans hadn't expected to be where they were by July in 1940 they hadn't expected um, uh, France to fall they hadn't expected well they all they, I think I think they fought in 19, you know, May 1940, when they attacked, that if we don't win in very quick order, we're never going to win. Yeah. So the only chance we have, and there's lots of senior German commanders who don't think there's a gnat's chance of that happening. Yeah. But, but Guderian does, and Halder does, who is the chief of staff of the army, does actually come around to the idea that actually it's a crazy plan, but you know what? It might just work. Hitler's <laughs> all over it like a rash. Yeah, brilliant. Let's do it. Do you think there was a meeting where he actually said that? <laughs> I'm furious. No, this is my... It might just work. I never know. <laughs> yes. I'm going to evolve the dice. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, because it was their only option. Their only option was to get it done quickly. Yeah. Because, because they, knew, they knew if yeah. you don't knock France out. But it's also because they're all Clausewitz fans, and Clausewitz talks about the decisive battle where you strike a blow that, totally, the, yeah. that, that knocks the enemy over and it's over rather than the, 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 the British way of looking at it, which is we're going to grind away at you yeah. and pay other people to fight you yeah. until in the end you give up. Yeah. Which is the way the British have done war... Forever. Forever. Uh, but, but, that's, but, but that's also the way the Germans have done the war forever. That, yeah. th that is the German way of war. Because they haven't got many resources, because they're stuck in the middle of Europe, you know, what their only hope of ever winning is to strike with enormous amount of force very quickly. And it, the main point of impact, and it, surround your enemy in an island. And of course it worked in 1870-1871. They defeated France like that, knocked them over like yep. a house of cards. Yep. Right, okay. And 1866 in Denmark and all the rest of it. Right, so the Battle of, <laughs> so the battle of Britain uh, is well, one it, of... But, it, but it's because it forces Hitler to go into the Soviet... So the only option is, okay, so we're running out of stuff, so what do we do now? Because yeah. hovering in the wings is America. Yeah. So what, what are we going to do? Well, I'll tell you what. We were going to go into the Soviet Union in 1943-44, but let's just bring that whole thing forward. Which, obviously, he does and goes in in June 1941 with catastrophic consequences for Germany. But had they not lost the Battle of Britain, they wouldn't. They would have waited till they built up enough strength and done it properly. Yeah. Well, and now, the, I mean, the second one here, Roosevelt winning his third term, um, you know, that's interesting because... 
normally, well, normally people would talk about Stalingrad, about a decisive battle, about maybe maybe Citadel in Kursk, maybe maybe D-Day. But what we've we've got to we've a simple piece of politics here, haven't we? Yeah, and, I've, and these two things are the beginning of the war because it's what makes the war go on for a long time, and it means that, and it goes back to to Germany. You know, if Germany's not going to win quickly, it's not going to win. Uh, and the key thing about Roosevelt standing for a third term is that there is literally no one else, no other political leader in America who could do what he could do. And he knows this, that he is the right man to lead the United States through this crisis, this, this process of, of rearming very rapidly and being ready to go into war when, when, at such a point when it happens. Uh, and no one else would have done that. Uh, and it, without him taking that third term, which no one had ever done before, I'm pretty convinced that America wouldn't have been in the war in December 1941. I think it would have taken a very different, different turn, and well, certainly not if, again. Even if the Japanese had struck at Pearl Harbor uh, uh, under, I don't know, um, who, who, who did he run against? Remind me. Oh, God, I knew Anyone? No, it wasn't. I can't remember. It's anyway, just, but, but, even if, but, but even Pearl Harbor wouldn't have been a, a sufficient tipping point. Yeah, but I don't think he'd have then gone into Europe. I think they'd have just focused... I think they'd have made right. it just a... a, a let's Japan against first. The Japanese, and, yeah. yeah. Right, yeah. Because, I mean, after all, but he ran on it. He ran on a, I'm not going to go into the war ticket completely, didn't he? Yeah. A barefaced lie. Um, uh, and he also became president in... You know, he was elected in 1932 on a completely isolationist ticket. Yeah. So it is, it is literally the biggest political vault fast is of all vault fasses, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's a pretty big moment. Well, it's a huge moment because, after all, it, it's, it's your arsenal of democracy moment. Yep. And also, when the Russians come in, they're quite happy to provide the Russians with lorries and boots and yes. tanks and, exactly. and, and aircraft parts and all sorts of stuff and fuel and, uh, and, and all the things that, that they need to win the war, which brings us... Well, oh, no, there's no Eastern Front, which brings us to uh, uh, Guadalcanal. Now... Um, that is the decisive moment in the in the Pacific campaign, you would say. Yeah, I think so. And I think just to, just to go back to Battle of Britain and Roosevelt, I think that's what seals the fate of the Soviet Union. So yeah. I think, you know, obviously the, the, the Eastern Front is a massive campaign, but but in terms of decisive moments that really turn the war and make sure that ultimately the Allies win, those two are probably more important than than, than yeah. um, the invasion of the Soviet Union, because the other follows. Wow. Crikey. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to our mailbox. <laughs> <laughs> Winning Guadalcanal, that's what turns... I think that is the key turning point in the Pacific War. It's, it's, you, know, you could argue the Battle of Midway, you've but been, it's, it's the one where it all just goes really passionate. You've been there? Amazing. Yeah, I have. Of course you have. I have, I have, I have. And what's it like? It's absolutely amazing. It's stultifyingly hot and humid. I mean, you are absolutely drenched in a matter of minutes. Um, but it is amazing because, of course, it's a, it's a very poor country. Um, and a lot of the battlefield just hasn't been cleared up. And we did manage to find um, John Bazalone's place where he won his Medal of Honor on Bloody Ridge, and you could still see the perimeter wire that the uh, Marines put around in the jungle. You could find lots and lots of empty bullet cases and Japanese magazines from their machine guns and all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's really properly cool. I was going to ask you what the cocktails were like. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> they were terrible. Now, um, we've got to trot through this because we're, we're burning up our time and what we yeah. really want is your questions rather than our answers. So, um, most important campaign of the uh, Second World War, Battle of the Atlantic. Well, it's got to be because, you know, the, the whole Western effort is completely supplied through the Atlantic. If you haven't got that, I mean, everything from around the world is coming through the Atlantic and into those ports of, you know, Liverpool and, and, and so on and Glasgow and you just can't avoid so that the follows in So, that follows from Roosevelt in a way? Yep. So, yeah. Right. Yep. And then the Eastern Front, because we've, we, um, 
A few podcasts ago, I don't know if you're all regular listeners, but we um, we talked about um, D-Day and we'd had a, we'd had we'd read something from the Russian embassy, hadn't we, the Russian Foreign Office about how D-Day was a sideshow and not a decisive moment and, and the Eastern Front was more important. How dare us be not dare, mention the Great Patriotic War yeah, and all the rest of it. And we upset an awful lot of people by saying, nah. I'll tell you who's really upset everyone though, Dr. Ben Wheatley. Yeah. He's a Cambridge academic and he's, he suggested that actually a lot of the losses um, to the uh, Red Army tanks on, uh, at uh, Prokhorovka yep. and the Battle of Kursk in July 1943 was because they just drove in, accidentally into their own anti-tank ditch. They did. Gone down. Well, they they did. did. And, he, and he's, and he's for, proved it forensically. And as you can imagine, the Russians are yes, absolutely the Russian, incensed. The Russian historiography, the, the Soviet historiography, was that it was the greatest tank battle of all time with thousands of tanks on both sides destroyed, yep. engaged and destroyed. And yep. it's probably thousands of Russian tanks destroyed and 25 Germans yep. picking them off as they all fell into the tank yeah. trap. It's, it's absolutely amazing. You, you've never, I've never come across a World War II story uh, uh, that is so entrenched, that is so completely, di- the myth is so totally different to the reality. It's absolutely extraordinary. But, I mean, even the battle. But Roman, yeah, Roman, Roman Turpel is the, uh, one of the Germans who's written about this. And uh, I've, I've read his book really recently, his book about Kursk. And uh, the point he makes at the end of the book is that there was a period where Russians were, after the, after the Soviet Union fell, there were a period where Russian historians were able to get into the Red Army archive, yep. look at it, tell the true story, and one of them basically, one of them was basically, and then of course, uh, it, the politics changes again, and you have to go nationalist again, and, and one of them was, you know, basically had to leave the country. There's another German historian who's not allowed in Russia anymore, not allowed in the archive, has been completely blacklisted from Russia because he's been writing this way about it. And there's a, there's a book from the 90s that a Russian historian wrote, basically, you know, the truth about Kursk, we were lied to, it's all nonsense. And, and uh, that history, I mean, the thing, the thing that always strikes me is the profligacy that the Soviets had with their own soldiers, how they, how many of their men they were preparing. It's a period. The Russians win at Kursk, but but they lose something like eight to one um, casualty rate, which is just extraordinary. I mean, what kind of victory is that? And that that's the I always think that that's the picture of the Eastern Front that we that, that you, you, we're going to get get towards. Anyway, we have to move on because time time is tight. Right, we um, run. I think we should just go straight to the audience, don't you? Yeah, I think we go. Yes, yeah, some questions from the audience. I think now we have Harry with a microphone. So um, lights uh, are up. That's great. Harry, here comes. Right oh, is that, uh, it's Harry with a the microphone. There? So right at the back, the lady at the back. Thanks for all that. Uh, we thought we were coming to a comedy, but nevertheless. Um, <laughs> Oh, we've had a couple of laughs along the <laughs> okay, way. Okay. Uh, my question is not battle-related uh, as such, but I'm always very interested as to why Himmler w- didn't have a seat at the Vanze conference. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, well, that is because that wasn't really his... I mean, he's, he's the kind of CEO of, of, of the SS, and under him is Heydrich, who is in charge of the Reich Security Office, which is all the police and all the rest of it. And the, the subject matter of the Von Sieg conference 
is not to agree the final solution, it is to explain to a bunch of other administrators what's going to happen and how they're going to do it. So it's a delegation. The, de the decision has delega already been made. It's so him, it just doesn't need to be there. You know, yeah. it's not, that's not on his watch. I mean, you know, he's already agreed the process. So he's agreed with, with him, with, with Hydric, what is going to happen. Hydric's job is then to get all these regional administrators and say, okay, boys, this is what's going to happen. So he's just, that, that's why he's not there. It's just, you know. He's delegated it. It's, been, yeah. it's gone down the food G chain. Goering yeah. and Himmler. It is, actually, it's Goering on the 31st of July um, who actually uh, um, signs off on it. And who's next? Uh, the, the, the gentleman here. Thanks, Harry. That's actually, have you ever been to Vonzi? Because it, 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 is, it is really weird. You, 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 it, it, it is a, a perfectly nice villa. Um, and it's like all these places. It's like going to the um, to the site of the Führer bunker. It's just so banal, and everyone talks about the banality of evil. But but when you're there, it, it is chilling by just how ordinary and bland and unexceptional it is. It really really is extraordinary. But in a really very lovely part of of, of sort of Western Berlin. Yeah. Hi. There's a section of Atlantic Wall built north of Stirling, and the county archaeologist told me it was to do with. Um, German concrete being better than British concrete. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> well, not by the end of the war, but I mean, German concrete was getting really, really poor by the end. They were just sort of shoving anything. And actually, you can see this really, really clearly along the Normandy coastline, where you can see the bunkers that have been built with a bit of care and attention and in time. And you can tell the ones that have been hastily built in kind of sort of April and May 1944. Um, it was the misfortune of the British at Sword Beach to come up against one of the best built and best designed and best constructed bunker complexes um, in front of uh, just, just south of the beach uh, and in their path towards Caen. But um, uh, no, I don't think that is true. I, I think, um, I don't know why there's some Atlantic wall up in, up in Scotland, but, um, you know, concrete's concrete, and I suppose they just sort of shipped it over for some reason. I don't know. I have no answer to why they would He have doesn't done that. know. But. <laughs> That's why he was talking but, about Sword Beach, because he but knows I'll about tell you that. What, but, but, well, I can tell you what. <laughs> early, early, war con early war German concrete was really, really good, and they loved it. They just couldn't get enough of building concrete. But later on, the war is rubbish. So it depends what stage of the war it was built. Uh, well, bang in the middle. So I would say probably, you know, on balance, not really. <laughs> Our volunteer from earlier on the end of the row there, the young lad here. Do you think the um, bombing of Dresden was mor uh, morally justifiable? Morally justifiable? Well, that's an excellent question because if, if you think that, if you think, if, whatever your answer is to Dresden, then it has to be the same answer to Hamburg, it has to be the same answer to. Berlin, the bombing of Berlin, Wurzburg. of Essen, of Würzburg, um, uh, the destruction of the Ruhr, even, uh, uh, I mean, maybe the, the Dambuster raids, um, uh, the raids on Peenemünde, um, uh, you know, the, 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 I, th the, I mean, it's, a, it's an excellent question, and one that, that comes up over and over again, but if you're going to, if it's Dresden, you've got, to, you've, you've got to ask the question about the whole of the area bombing campaign, the whole of the idea of strategic bombing, the idea of whether it was effective or not, the idea of whether, whether it's militarily um, uh, justifiable and morally justifiable, th th those two collide. Um, uh, maybe, maybe you're... Uh, you, you, because because Dresden, is, Dresden is basically the, the point at which the Allies, have, 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 they're no, they've no longer got air superiority, they've air supremacy, so they can do what they like. They can do whatever they like. They're starting to basically 
arguably run out of targets. The Ruhr has completely, by, by this point of the war, the Ruhr has completely collapsed. Its industry has totally collapsed. The Russians are holding the, the Silesia, so they have the other bit of German industry as well. So, so but, but, what, but, but what you have in Bomber Command is this incredibly effective weapon. It, 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 and you, you can look at it like that before we get to the moral question. If you're the people making the Bomber car, Command decisions, Raiding Dresden, doing a, doing a three-day raid on Dresden with the Americans makes, in its own context, perfect sense, right? It's whether you... The moral question is then... <laughs> I mean, I was... This is basically impossible to answer, I think, because it also then goes on... This takes you to Hiroshima and Nagasaki as well, where basically the Allies have found a way of doing what they did to Dresden, but with one aircraft which of course saves their own lives, saves their own technical, technological effort, and all that sort of thing. So I can't answer your question. The, the, the big, the big thing about Dresden, though, is, is that, that it, it's sort of, you know, we're gonna win, why do you have to destroy this medieval city? They weren't doing anything, they were just innocent Germans by this stage. You know, what you have to remember was, first of all, Dresden is one of the most rabidly Nazi cities in, in Germany. Secondly, there's 127, 137 factories doing war work. It's a huge um, hub. Uh, and actually, it is at the Yalta Conference just a couple of weeks beforehand, because they, they bomb it on the night of the 13th, 14th February 1945. The Yalta Conference is just a couple of weeks before. Uh, and, and Stalin specifically asks the Allies to bomb Dresden. The reason he does that is because it is a major marching yard and hub through which troops are being poured into the southern eastern front and also down southwards through the Alps into, into um, Italy. So in terms of a military target, Dresden is absolutely kosher. The problem is, is the problem is that the centre of the targeting is right in the centre of the city, not on the marching yards, nor is it on the bar huge barracks just to the north of the city. And I think you can argue, and probably argue convincingly, that that was questionable. The, the other thing about Dresden is that Goebbels immediately grabs onto this and yeah. says 120,000 people have been killed. And it is something that is still believed, of course, by, um, what's his name, that lunatic, David Irving, yeah. when he does his book. Um, and actually, it's now been conclusively proved that it was about 19,500. I say only 19,500. It's still a huge number, but, but not even close to how many people were killed in, in Operation Gomorrah on Hamburg, for example. Uh, and, and, you know, everyone forgets that kind of Würzburg was, was totally destroyed, you know, a few days later and so on. Um, um, so... The interesting thing is that by that stage of the war, Bomber Command had the capacity to do precision bombing. The whole reason why the Americans were doing daylight bombing is because they did have lots of moral concerns about area bombing. America obviously didn't suffer the blitz, had not been bombed itself, so the, so the goalposts were different for America. They just were. You know, they didn't have Coventry and the blitz and so on. The second thing is, but. By that stage of the war, daylight bombing is not more precise than nighttime bombing. In fact, very often, nighttime bombing, because of superb um, British bombing techniques, is often better than, than daylight American bombing. Uh, and a classic example of this is 617 Squadron. In, very, in April, early April 1945, they attacked the Valentin U-boat assembly plant um, just outside Bremen. And this place is absolutely vast. It's 400 metres long by 100 metres wide. And the British have been watching this being built since the previous autumn. And it is to assemble Type 21 U-boats, which are potentially a big game-changer in the war, had they come in a lot earlier. And they've noticed that the roof is 15 metres thick 
in certain parts. I mean, 50 metres thick roof. I mean, that is just insane. Uh, uh, but in other parts, it's only five metres thick. So they go over when it's almost complete with grand slams, which are these 10 tonne, you know, uh, earthquake bombs. The bombs hit the five metre bit of the roof successfully, go down three metres, then the explosive charge kicks in and that gets them through the last two. And actually, if you go into the Valentin um, remains of this Valentin uh, um, assembly plant, you can still see the end of one of these grand slams on the ground. It is absolutely extraordinary so they can do they can do precision if they really really want to the point is by 1945 it is just will you bloody give up you know we will keep bombing you the moment you give in we'll stop bombing and you know what the moment peace is signed the moment the germans surrender the bombing stops so to a certain extent you know blame the nazi leadership rather than bomber command would be my suggestion so it's a tricky one that yeah um, yes, the, the gentleman at the front. Which one? The, the, the second one. Hello, I'm very impressed by the knowledge of the members of the audience. The mine might be, seem to be a, a question based on some ignorance, but what was the connection between the Germans and the Japanese, and why did the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor, and where the how did it become the world war? Goodness me, how long we got? About three minutes. Um, yikes. Um, okay. Uh, well, there wasn't a connection. That's the. There wasn't really. A and connection. they didn't. And they. The, they had several moments where they could have made the most of it, and could have done stuff to work together, and could have made things much, much more difficult for the Allies, but they never did. Uh, and never found a way effectively to do it. Neither, neither, neither government was particularly interested in it um, and didn't have the mindset particularly for, for working cooperatively. So you, you, there, there, are various, there are various points. I mean, the, the, obviously, the, the, it, it wrecks things for the, the... The British war effort is knocked completely over by the fall of Singapore. And that effectively um, completely changes how the British can conduct... Um, the war, but the Japanese haven't done that to help the Germans and haven't done that in sync with the Germans at all. And so it, it ends up a world war because the Japanese pick their moment. There's a moment of world crisis where the British are looking in the other direction and, and, and the British have advertised pretty clearly during the 1930s that they're not really going to spend money on defending um, uh, the, the, their eastern empire. They're not really going to spend money on Singapore. They keep putting off Singapore. You see endless, endless budgets in the, in the 20s and 30s where they, they, they're going to spend the money on Singapore the year after next, and this keeps happening. So the, so the Japanese are being opportunistic, really, rather than thinking, thinking um, we'll do this with the Germans. They think it's world crisis here. The British are looking in the other direction. They've got limited resources, and they've said so politically over and over again. We'll, 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 we'll grab what we can while we can, while there's a moment. And, the, and, and that's how it becomes a world, a world war. Not really because the Japanese don't get on the phone to the Germans and go, um, anything we can do to help. I mean, it, it, it never really happens, which is kind of mystifying because you'd think... There is a moment, I and mean, you know, we've, we've on a previous podcast we talked about Madagascar, about the Battle of Madagascar, where Madagascar is suddenly super important for about for about three months, um, and the Japanese do turn up at that in mini subs, do turn up during a 
the British fighting the British and the South Africans essentially fighting the free the fighting the Vichy French, the Japanese do show up, and that's that's about it. That's about the only mi minute where the where the, the two ends of the world war properly sort of uh, touch, but it's but it's momentary, and uh, that's it. That's that. I think that's as close as we, in the time we got as close as we can get to. <laughs> yeah, I mean just. In, 30 seconds, well, let's call it a minute and a half. Um, <laughs> I mean, a lot, a lot Germans are going in and advising the Japanese in the, in the 1930s quite a lot, so there is, a, there, is a, there is a sort of tenuous link there. But what is really interesting about the, the Axis um, Agreement, which is signed on the 30th of September 1940, where, which is where uh, Japanese signs up to Italy and, and Germany, is that all those three people, the, the understanding is we will all have our own sphere, we'll do our own thing. So the whole point about Mussolini is he's going to have his own little bit in the South Mediterranean and Africa, and he's going to be left alone to do his thing. The Germans will be left alone to do their thing, and the Japanese are left to do their thing. But So really, it's, it's more of a kind of sort of, rather than a kind of sort of, I'm going to lend you stuff and give you arms and, and all the rest of it, it's kind of, let's just all agree that we're on the same side and we're just going to leave each other to get on with our own thing. The whole point about the Japanese is they've suddenly grown after the Meiji um, uh, Revolution in the um, 16, uh, in the uh, um, 18, 1860s, 80s, um, suddenly they urbanise very, very quickly, uh, and they're turning into a modern state. But Japanese is very resource poor as well, a bit like um, uh, a bit like Germany. They just don't have enough of everything, and they've got to get it from somewhere else. Um, and they're getting a lot of supplies from the United States, and are very resentful of the hold that the United States, particularly, but also Britain and, and, and the Dutch, have in Southeast Asia, which they feel is kind of their turf and to be their area, their sphere of influence. So they're going to China to take the stuff that they need to kind of progress in exactly the same way that they think that Britain has taken India and its empire and all the rest of it. Uh, and it doesn't really go according to plan because the, the, the Chinese don't complete surrender and actually it started to cost them rather than a gain. So then they think, well, what are we going to do? Well, we'll just take all this stuff that the Americans and the British have. And the only way they're going to do it is by knocking the, the US fleet out long enough for them to then have this capture, take the resources, build up enough strength, and, and then hopefully the Americans will kind of sue for a kind of peace in which they come out, the Japanese come out on top. That is the plan. But a bit like um, the, the Germans, it's a, it's a roll of the dice and it's a massive gamble and obviously it doesn't work despite the victory. So don't be fooled by all the victories in 1941-42 in because ultimately they just don't have enough of everything and they're not modern enough. One more. We have time for one more question. Let's go to the back a little bit. Let's go, yeah, the, yeah. Chat with a tie. Yeah. Halfway, halfway up, up. Halfway up. Left-hand side. Made an effort. Right-hand side, depending on which way you're looking at it. That's uh, always skiving off work. It's one or the other. <laughs> always. Uh, love the podcast. Thank great, you. Great, great. Well done. Excellent. Carry on with your question. What is your... <laughs> What is your favourite mark of Spitfire and why? Sweet. You go first. All right. It's good. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm very partial to the, the, the Mark 14 with the Griffin engine, but I think it's got to be the Mark 9. Yeah. Just, it's a pilot's, it's the it's, it's most common kind of combat one. It's a, it's a, the Silver Spitfire's just headed off trying to circumnavigate the globe that's a that's a mark nine and it's uh, and i've been lucky enough to fly in one and it's and it's you know it's just it's got that 1500 horsepower engine it's it's just beautiful and fantastic and just does what it says on the tin he's right <laughs> there's there, um the, the, we've, i think we've both flown it flown in the not the same time the same aircraft but there's a moment when they start the engine you get this big belch of um uh the unspent fuel when the engine starts comes belching over the plane and you get this giddy rush mm. of the smell of the aviation fuel in the cockpit. 
and uh, and then it makes that you know the, the, the Merlin engine noise right there in front of you, or rather in you, and it is the most extraordinary thing. Taking off as well, and you look out, and there's the shadow of the elliptical wing, and it sort of separates as you get you take off. It's just oh. and uh, Matt Jones, who was piloting, said, said, "Okay, James, you've got control." And I went, "What the." Yeah. Have I? Uh, so I was like, okay. Uh, and everyone yeah. says that the, the Spitfire's a real thoroughbred and a lady and all the rest of it. And I can tell you the lightness of the controls is absolutely unbelievable. I mean, literally, you, you're holding the control column, you just go like that, and it goes... Yeah. And, and it hurtles off. That's and, why I asked him to take back control. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to use a current yeah. phrase. Yeah. <laughs> right, well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. I hope you've enjoyed the show. And if any of you aren't regular listeners to the podcast... Um, please do give us a try. Yep, you can find us on all podcast platforms. Just look up We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Uh, we'd like to think that the episodes are timeless and you can listen to them in any order. There's um, no chronology to it at all. Um, or rhyme and reason to a lot of it, to be perfectly honest. Um, and please do ask true. us questions, um, send in corrections. We don't know absolutely everything. Um, tell us stories of fathers, grandfathers, mothers, grandmothers, etc. Uh, and we do, I promise you, we read absolutely everything that comes in. So um, um, please do keep it coming. Anyway, enjoy the rest of the festival. Have a lovely time. Thank you very much for coming. Um, and cheerio. Auf Wiedersehen, Arrivederci, and sayonara to you all. Thanks for coming, everybody. Thank you.